Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies, and I am a programme director here. Thank you very much for joining us for this keynote speech by Nick Smallwood, the Chief Executive of the Infrastructure and Projects Authority and Head of the Government Project Delivery Function. Uh, Nick joined the IPA in August, uh, having been the Vice President uh, for uh, Global... The Vice President for... Project and Engineering and Chief Projects Engineer at Shell. He has 37 years experience of overseeing complex projects, uh, during which time he created the Shell Global Project Academy. Uh, he's certainly going to need to draw on all of that experience given the government's ambitious programme for the next five years. Uh, whether it's implementing Brexit, including substantial changes to the border and the immigration system, or meeting the pledge to boost infrastructure spending by 100 billion, success is going to depend on high quality project management. Uh, I'm delighted, therefore, that Nick has joined us today to set out his vision for the IPA uh, and the government project delivery function. Uh, I'm shortly going to hand over to Nick uh, for his speech. That will be followed by a few questions from me before I open it up to a Q&A uh, from the audience. So uh, please do think about some questions while Nick is speaking. Uh, but before I do so, I'd like to hand over uh, to, um, to Sue Kershaw, who's the president of the Association for Project Management, who kindly supported uh, today's event so that she can make a few introductory remarks. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I hope you can hear me okay. Absolutely delighted to be here this morning uh, to introduce Nick Smallwood and, and see what he has, his plans for going forward. As president of APM, uh, the chartered body for the project professional, I'm really delighted to support this event, in particular to hear about Nick and his plans. APM also values our strong partnership with the Institute for Government. And supporting this event is another example of what is working well between us. We value the close cooperation that we have with the IPA, working with them on their continuing journey to build the skills and capability of the growing army of project professionals within central government and indeed increasingly across other public bodies like local governments and the NHS. I was on the panel at the DFT last week where over 250 project and programme managers came together to celebrate DFT's approach to project and programme management. This symbiosis is real. Last month, APM achieved the landmark figure of our first 1,000 chartered project professionals in only one year since we've gained chartered status. Some one in five of these chartered project professionals are central government civil servants, and we are committed to support our members and the APA's work to professionalise project delivery. If the government is really serious about upping the pace and capability to deliver projects, it will need to continue to invest in the skills of existing professionals as well as bring in new talent. With the new government revamping a national infrastructure plan to be unveiled as part of the budget, as well as continuing to develop a host of many, many significant projects, this event is not only timely, but essential. Whilst this renewed focus on delivering change, whether it is housing, addressing climate change, improving health and social care, or preparing for a post-Brexit world, 
it is welcome. Dominic Cummings includes project management in his list of weirdo, misfits and old skills. I'm sure you all picked that up. I loved it when I read that in the Times. This is, strangely, a huge positive for us and we should really, really build on it. We need to make project and program management a core competence for the public service. That is why the sterling work of the IPA over the last few years to build the capability for project delivery in the UK is so important and so impressive. And Fiona Spencer in particular is doing an amazing job on this. It's going to help us projectize, if you like, everything we do. Let's call it projectization, if you like, a horrible word, but very meaningful. So that the increasing recognition that project delivery is no longer a Cinderella discipline, but is an essential prerequisite of delivering public benefit. This is so powerful. I've had the opportunity to meet with Nick, and his vision and intent are strong and clear. And I feel sure you will support him in his quest to improve government project delivery. Thank you, and I now hand over to Nick. Sue, thank you very much for that. Nick, over to you. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Nick. Good morning, everyone. Um, really appreciate being invited to talk to you this morning. Um, so let me just uh, set off by recognising that uh, the Institute for Government recently published their uh, Whitehall Monitor Report, which gives a commentary on the IPA's annual report data, and it quite rightly points out that government need to do a much better job of prioritising their projects and rebalancing and levelling up the focus on infrastructure. You heard from Nick mentioning the government's ambition to have an, uh, an infrastructure revolution, another 100 billion of investment and in infrastructure, uh, really focused across <coughs> all of the UK to benefit all of the citizens of the UK. So an ambitious programme, and clearly we need to play a key part in that. But what is also clear is um, whilst we have pockets of excellence and some great examples of projects well delivered, um, the 30 hours free childcare, if you look at the work ongoing at Sellafield, there's some really impressive projects. But equally, there are many where we simply need to do better. There are far too many projects that overrun on cost or schedule, and either of those have an impact on benefits. So clearly, we need to fix the project system, is how I've characterised it. And I make the observation that there's really three focus areas we need to have. The three Ps. Uh, the first is people, because people are key to delivering projects. The second is our principles. And the third, performance. Principles are about getting the basics right, doing the things that good project managers know need to be done, clarity of scope, clarity of outcome, freezing the scope, benchmarking and knowing where your costs are. The people space is about having the right people in the right place. And I'll talk separately about stepping up on performance. But I'm going to start with people because they're the most important. So I've taken the role in the Cabinet Office as our talent champion. I'm also the gender diversity champion in the project delivery function. And we're taking uh, diversity really seriously. We need to embrace the entire diverse population of the UK and embrace that to deliver better outcomes. And we're doing a mixed job. I think on gender we've got some fantastic figures when we look at the fast streamers coming in. The vast majority of fast streamers are female. But if I look in later career professionals, we simply don't have enough representatives from female uh, population. We can do more with uh, disability and with more with uh, LBGT. But we're focused and we have the data to really focus in that space. 
But at the same time, we need to equip people to do the right things. And I'm delighted to come into government and see the quality of the major project leadership academy, the project leadership program, and how many people we put through those programs. But they've touched a small percentage of the some 14,000 people that work on government projects. So I want to build a framework that actually attracts and retains talent when they come in from the fast stream uh, population right through their career to end career people who can justifiably go on the MPLA programs, which are recognised as world class. So having that framework, an academy, if you will, to make sure that at every level in government project delivery, we have competent professionals. And we'll know that because we intend to do a much more thorough job of assessment and accreditation, using the prof professional bodies that exist out in industry to make sure that we don't need to duplicate and we have a hard measure of competence that's recognised and consistent with what exists outside of government. So a lot we can do in that space to improve. I think we also need to recognise that um, we need to have delivery capability and capacity across what is a changing landscape. We've got uh, the fourth industrial revolution coming. We need to be ready for that. We need to have new skills in our workforce. We need to have new skills in our project delivery professionals. So there's work to do in government. There's also work to do in the supply chain to ensure that we have the right skills to deliver those ambitious projects. And that will me mean growing skills, growing competencies, working on apprentice schemes that have been somewhat in the doldrums in the recent years. And to do that, I think the supply chain will quite rightly look for a consistent pipeline of projects coming. So I'm really optimistic that if we truly have an infrastructure revolution and we have huge investment, that's going to be the opportunity and the trigger to really get serious about uh, the ambitions in this space. So a lot we can do across that, uh, that space at all levels. If I turn to principles, I think we really do need to get the basics right. I'm somewhat shocked at the mixed professionalism around development of uh, project cost estimates. People use, loosely use the language of probability and probabilistic estimates. I want a hard estimate with a, a confidence limit around it, as any project professional would. And it's not surprising that the level of confidence will improve as you get to an investment decision, but we need to do a better job of the front end, a better job of being clear on what our ambition and outcome is intended to be, and that we spend the right amount of time getting that work defined. That's an area that's a consistent challenge. You've heard my predecessor talk about the valley of death between policy and project delivery. <coughs> I'd actually like to characterise it today as the valley of opportunity. I think we know now enough about what works and what doesn't work, and I think we need to really bridge the gap between those two professions. And we've started. We've started by having conversations in government about not making ambitious statements with point <coughs> estimates and no ranges on scopes that haven't been defined for outcomes that are unclear. Because that, quite frankly, leads to a conversation about you overspent. Well, what did you overspend against? A defined cost estimate developed by a project professional? Or just a wild ambition? So that conversation is live and happening in government today, and I'm really pleased to see the progress we're making in that space. But it also beholds us to do a better job of that front-end definition, to spend the quality of time to really deeply challenge what outcomes do we need. And any of you who have been close to world-class project delivery will know that there is a direct correlation between best practical front-end loading and better outcomes. So a lot we can do in that uh, basic 
project delivery space, I call it principles. We're actually going to publish some project delivery principles for government, share them broadly across all the departments in government so that we have a common language and focus areas on where we know we need to do a better job. And then if I turn to performance, there's an old adage, what get me gets measured gets done. And I don't think we've done enough to measure our performance and hold people to account on that performance. So we clearly need to make a step up in that space. We've got too many projects which overrun uh, or, or drift on cost, and it does directly impact our benefits. So we're going to focus really heavily in that space. We will require and request KPIs. I'll expect those to appear in the supply chain as well. The picture isn't uniform. We've got some pockets of really excellent performance. If I uh, quote Network Rail's modular stations program, if you look at Bank Station, standardised bridges in uh, Highways England, smart motorway development, there's pockets of excellence where they've realised that by standardising and focus, you can really do things smarter and quicker and for less cost. And I think that's going to be a message going forward. We want to really identify even more lessons learned where we can step up the game and perform better. And in that light, we've got the Transforming Infrastructure Programme. It's a published document. We intend to drive that implementation now going forward. And it really does um, address some of the fundamental and interrelated challenges to de deliver and develop UK infrastructure. Um, we really do want to focus on modern methods of construction and challenging the supply chain to take out waste on unnecessary cost. So if I conclude, it's very clear delivering uh, the major infrastructure projects is a challenge. They're large and complex with many stakeholders and many uh, com uh, complexities. But we do need to be fit for the future and we need to level up in project management, in our people, in our skills, and they need to be available in all regions of the UK. The problems are well known across industry and it's been discussed for many years, but I truly believe now is the time to step up and address them. And we need to be bolder in doing that, and I'm certainly committed to take a leading role in that space. In the IPA, we're focusing on creating a step change in delivery and performance of infrastructure, closing the sector's well-known productivity gap, uh, encouraging strategic investment, and we've got real support from the top of this government to do just that. I'm optimistic about the future of project and infrastructure delivery in the UK, but there's no doubt we have a lot more work to do. So let me pause there and hand back to you, Nick. Thank you. Um, please take a seat. Um, first of all, let me thank you for plugging Whitehall Monitor. My colleagues will be delighted with that. Uh, for those who haven't read it, it was published last week and it's our assessment of the performance of Whitehall. Um, I want to pick up on a, a few of the excellent points you made. So we talked about um, projects going over time and over budget. And there is some research that suggests uh, by Ben Friedberg that nine out of ten mega projects globally go over budget. Is this, do you think we can really improve? Is, it, is there not a kind of inevitability to these projects taking longer and costing more than planned? The data speaks for itself, so you're correct that many of the larger projects overspend. In, uh, in the energy industry, I think the figure is 75% of all mega projects overspend by more than 25% or they're later than 25%. Uh, so most of them not good. I think, to be honest, you have to focus on, so what is it that the other 25% do? What is it that they do differently? And I come from an organisation where we had that focus, and when we look really hard, do you know what? It's those principles that I just referred to. It's getting the basics right. 
not making a promise on a schedule without a scope, not doing a poor job of the estimate and then finding that actually it changes. Or worse, you do a good job of the estimate and the schedule and then you change the scope, you don't freeze it and it has a profound impact on the deliverability. So it's about doing those basics right and that's why you'll see me drive with some passion and energy that we have to get the basics right. And I firmly believe that you can be in that small percentage that get it right. Um, I was also really pleased to hear you talking about the need to better communicate the uncertainty of some of these estimates. They're having yeah. a, a hard estimate with confidence yeah. intervals, and that's yeah. something that we've called for as well. The pushback that we've always had to that is, well, it's one thing a, a think tank saying that. It's quite another expecting a government minister to stand up in parliament and give that uncertainty or for it to expect the press to report it in that way. How realistic do you think it is to expect that we can kind of communicate these things more intelligently? I actually have an expectation that we do it, not a, not a, a realism. It's a fact that we need to be very clear on if we have a scope that's well defined, it's cost estimated, it's a plus or minus 10% estimate, you can talk about the upper range of that cost estimate. If you have an ambition for a project to be delivered in 10 to 15 years from now with no scope, how can you possibly talk about a final cost figure? So we are having real conversations in government now to equip our ministers with the information they need to make those choices of what they say with the clear ambition that they only put ranges where we have no scope. Um, you talked a lot about uh, the importance of people. Yeah. Um, how would you compare the capability and capacity of the civil service when it comes to managing major projects to the private sector? That's a difficult one. I think we have some really, truly talented people across government. I've been really impressed. Do we have enough project delivery people with real hard delivery? That's more challenging to answer. I think if you look at how government deliver projects, most of the work is done by our delivery bodies, not by government departments. So it's a fine balance of making sure that we've got the right skills in government who understand what it will take to deliver and holding our delivery bodies to account to deliver a better outcome than they do today. Which is why I was so keen that we grow the capability across government so that we do know how to contract as informed clients going forward. Um, I mentioned um, Brexit in my introduction. Um, my Brexit colleagues tell me that there are around 300 uh, projects across government um, to uh, deliver Brexit, and historically the IPA hasn't publicly reported on those. Now that we are definitely leaving on the 31st mm -hmm. of January, and it, this really is now about the implementation challenge, do you have any plans to kind of change the way that you publicly communicate about the implementation of Brexit? Not really. I think if you look at the um, EU-related uh, projects, it's actually a large portfolio of fairly smaller projects. They're typically within the budget uh, approval limits of the department, so they don't make the government major project portfolio. Um, I will say that IPA have been invited in to review those and do assurance reviews just about across the piece of all 300. But quite frankly, as we leave the EU, many of those programmes will uh, translate into business-as-usual activities that each of the departments need to do in their own space. So there won't be any reporting as a separate uh, entity. And uh, one final question from me. So it's now uh, around two years since the collapse of Carillion, um, to which the government responded pretty effectively, um, and uh, almost a year since they uh, published the outsourcing playbook, which sets out uh, their plans for how to improve contracting across governments on yep. complex contracts. What's your assessment of kind of how well that's been implemented 
so far and the kind of what more needs to be done, particularly given as uh, his name has been mentioned in the introduction, Dominic Cummings has talked a lot about kind of poor procurement practice across government. So I've actually been in, in quite some dialogue with Dominic on exactly that subject. I think the playbook is excellent. It's a, it really does set a great foundation. Uh, we've got more to do. We're on the journey. Uh, and as I said, a lot of the work gets done by our delivery bodies. So we've got to make sure we reach out to all those who are placing contracts on behalf of uh, UK government. I think there's more to do to be much clearer and concise in our requirements uh, and expectations on outcomes. Uh, and that's not about terms and conditions. That's just about being very clear on expected performance metrics that we want to see on projects. So we're on a journey. It's not work complete, but more to do. Great. Okay, I'm now going to open it up for questions. Um, can you please keep them short and please ensure that they are in fact questions and not statements? Um, could you please also say uh, your name and where you're from? And I'm going to take a couple of questions at a time. Um, so I'm going to go, gentleman, uh, right at the black in the blue tie. Uh, morning. My name is Stephen Hammond. Uh, I'm a member of Parliament. I wonder if you could just say what you think you can do to... So, uh, to do something about uh, standardising the variation in the quality of government uh, delivery agencies. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we'll take both of these questions in the middle, but first, yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Queen Butler. I'm from Chatham House. Um, one thing you didn't mention in your introduction was climate change and the government's obligations uh, under its net zero by 2050 target. So I was, you know, infrastructure is going to be enormously important in delivering that, and I was wondering <coughs> what do you think that's going to mean for the work that you do in the future? Thank you. Okay, so two very different uh, questions, but let me try and answer them. Uh, on the one hand, it would be great if every uh, delivery body looked and felt the same as governed the same. The reality is that many of them have different uh, fiscal regimes and different uh, control regimes. But in principle, you're right where there is best practice we should seek to, to, to align on that. So we've just completed a uh, very large piece of work with the Department for Transport looking at a project delivery improvement programme where we focused on that governance issue specifically of what good looked like and where there were opportunities to improve on the delivery bodies. So we are going to work where we can to standardise um, but it's not one size fits all, quite frankly. There's a big difference between delivering in some of the MOD space versus delivering in the rail space. Um, if I move on to climate change, you're right, it's going to be a huge challenge, in my view, to get uh, carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, I don't think anyone really has an understanding of the enormity of that challenge and how we play in it, so that's work ongoing right now to get our arms around it. Um, my personal view is that to deliver some of the projects and programmes is going to require us to work across the whole of government and involve a whole suite of players to bring their knowledge and expertise to the table. Um, we're going to have to find mechanisms to understand the value and price of CO2 to make trade-offs. That work is all work ongoing right now. Um, the good news is I think it's top of the agenda, it's being thought about. Uh, I think it'll find its way into uh, a lot of the uh, topics and projects that you'll see coming forward. And I should say that the Institute is um, just starting a new project on the capability and capacity of government to, to reach net zero, and we're planning to publish something in the summer on that. Okay, I'll take a couple more questions. Um, okay, we'll take those two gentlemen in the middle. Um, Simon Judge, recently retired civil servant, not a member of the project delivery profession, although I spent my last year sorting out a couple of major projects, including some Carillion hospitals. Um, um, you, you focus quite a bit on the people aspects within the project delivery function. I wonder if you could say a bit more about your observations, perhaps 
difference between Shell and government on people who are not in the project delivery function? What are the cultural challenges there? What's the leadership behaviours you need to see from people outside the function? Uh, Jake Sumner, Field Consulting. Um, do you think there needs to be a sort of different appraisal system, uh, reform of the Green Book, um, aimed to take into consideration, as you've just mentioned, uh, net zero, but also, for example, a transport project isn't, you know, the cost and benefits on that past 60 years, which seems a bit ludicrous, as well, as, well as many other factors that are required to, to have much better join up to reflect the benefit and how projects are delivered? Two great questions. So let me take the one about uh, working outside the project delivery profession. Um, you know, 30, I've 38 years of experience now because I've <laughs> been out of show for a year. Um, my experience is that successful projects are delivered by teams. They're led by the project manager, but the project manager relies on the support and collaboration of a whole raft of expertise outside of that profession. So one of the key roles that we have is to do that integration and coordination and leadership. Um, equally, we need to help train, educate and help those outside the profession understand what good looks like and what part they can play in delivering success. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You've got to do the work of coordinating and herding the cats, but equally you have a role to play to help them understand where they can deliver value and where they can't. And I'll give you a practical example from my, my previous life and why I mentioned freezing the scope as being so important. I, w I was once project director on a multi-billion project delivery and I had technical professionals in my office every single day for three years coming up with great ideas on how they could make the project better. And every day I sent them away unless they were advising me of something that was unsafe or wouldn't work. Because the decision had been made to invest and deliver a scope and that's what we'd signed up to and that's what we were committed to and that's what we were being paid to do. And the danger of changing and tweaking is that a very, very small change in, in monetary terms can have a profound impact on cost and schedule and consequence. And so that's why it's so <coughs> important you collaborate early, get everyone's input early, and then freeze the scope and move on. So there's no simple answer to, to the observation, but you, you're basically absolutely right that it's, it's a, a game of coordination to get success. Okay, the Green Book. How long have we got? We've got um, so I've come into government and, and had to read the Green Book. had to read it three times, actually, because it's quite a boring read. Um, I, I think you're, you're partially right, and let me qualify that. You're partially right because I think now's the time that it's refreshed with some new focus, particularly to take account of climate change and a few other areas. But I would also push back and say there are too many people that simply haven't read the flexibility that currently exists in the Green Book. And when I've spoken to the people who deeply understand it, even on transport projects, you can do amazing things to state your case. You don't just have to quote the BCR and do the calculation on journey times. So I've had it my entire career where people say they don't understand and you say, have you read it? And the answer is no. They read one paragraph. They didn't read the other paragraph that comes with it. So uh, it will be refreshed. There's a piece of work going on right now in Treasury to refresh the Green Book. It's not going to be a radical refresh because it's not necessary. What's necessary is people to better understand and interpret it. And I think the spending team in Treasury are doing a great job now to work with the departments to help them understand that space. Thank you. Two more questions. Um, we'll have the gentleman over there first. 
Thank you. Uh, my name is Nick Kirby. I'm the Managing Director for the Shelford Group, which is a collaboration of 10 of the large teaching and research hospitals in the NHS. Um, so my question is focusing on the NHS. We had a very substantial program of hospital investment through the PFI uh, program. And we're about to now embark on a very substantial <coughs> hospital redevelopment program over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, just thinking on your point earlier on focusing on the 25% who really did things well, how do we make sure that the lessons from the PFI program in the NHS are fed into what happens over the next 10 to 15 years? Great. And one more question. Uh, we'll take this gentleman here in the green jacket and the blue tie. Jonathan Norman from the Major Projects Association. Uh, Nick Davis referenced the academic research on the performance of major projects. And that may be one of the reasons why, in the country at large, infrastructure and major projects have a pretty poor reputation. I wondered, do you feel that the IPA has a role, and if so, what is it, in changing the, the public perception about major projects? Okay, so two very different uh, questions. So let me take the first one on PFI and, and the hospital program. You're absolutely right, we need to learn, and we've got um, a spending uh, round request in right now to strengthen our focus in PFI and help people not only learn but off-board from the existing contracts as they come to, to contract close and really have a learning uh, environment there to make sure that we deeply understand what worked, what didn't work. <coughs> But really going forward, if we're not going to use PFI as a vehicle for delivery, we need to think actually beyond that. And we've got a strong ambition that if we've got a robust pipeline of new hospitals, new schools, new prisons, um, that we really focus more on uh, modern methods of construction, design one, build many. How can we help the delivery bodies and the departments really save money? And I, I'm personally quite ambitious that I'm not talking about tweaking, I'm not talking about 5 to 10%. My experience in the private sector is if you really standardise, rationalise and modernise and use modern methods, you're talking about 40 to 50% of capital reduction. It's that ambitious. So, you know, if you think about standardisation, how many different door designs do you use in schools? Well, it's in the tens and it probably should be in the threes. So. Every time you have variation, even if it's the colour of the door, someone has to go and procure the paint, change the paint booths and do it differently. So I think there's huge opportunity and huge opportunity to learn across the Department for Education, Department for Health, uh, DWP and so on. So we've got to step in, I think, as IPA and play a role in that space as the facilitator of good practice and help with the assurance reviews to get the learning across the different departments. So that we will certainly do. And that leads a little bit into the other question around does IPA have a role to play in changing the perception. I absolutely think we do. Um, hard to do that unless we can hold our lens up to successful projects. So my focus has been on getting the basics right, getting the principles right, skilling up the resource in the profession. And then when I've got some examples of success, it would be nice to talk about them publicly and share them more broadly. So absolutely. Great. Let's have two more questions. Uh, we'll have to put them down here. Oh, can we wait for the microphone? Thank you. Hi, Alex Walsh from Sellafield. Um, you commented briefly on the productivity gap uh, in the sector and also the fourth industrial revolution. I wonder if you can comment on government's role in the fourth industrial revolution and how it impacts on closing the productivity gap. Great, and then we will have one more um, from the gentleman there in the pink tie. 
Chris Stokes, Heathrow Southern Railway, in, in the last two to three years have been abortive attempts to introduce significant private sector investment in the rail network. Firstly, Network Rail's uh, Open for Business program, then Chris Grayling's market-led proposals. Given the importance of infrastructure investment and the scale of the government's ambition, do you say a way forward for government actually successfully to bring private sector investment into rail infrastructure? Okay, so let me take the fourth industrial revolution productivity question first. I, I absolutely do think we have a role to play. Um, and I'll describe it using uh, an example of, of 5D CAD. So 5D CAD is software technology that's been around for five years at least. It's mature, it's used in different industries, but bizarrely it's not used in the UK infrastructure industry. Why not? Well, why not? Because we didn't ask. And because we didn't ask, the supply chain gets reimbursed the same way they always have been. So I think the government can play a role by being the catalyst for change, by requesting and requiring certain productivity performance, and if necessary, specifying the tools that need to be used to demonstrate that. Um, in terms of the fourth industrial revolution, I don't think uh, if government is not an informed buyer and we don't know what's available in the marketplace, then we won't be able to have those kind of conversations. So just as I can talk knowledgeably about 5D CAD, I can do it because I did that in my last role. And I think IPA need to be at the leading edge of understanding not what bleeding edge technology is, but what's <coughs> proven and available and we should expect to see in our, our projects. And right now in IPA we're reorganising to have that focus on project futures to make sure that we can keep up and that we can advise the departments of what's possible and what they should be focusing on. I truly believe the productivity has stagnated for the last 20 years and we need to do something about it. Okay, private finance. I don't have a, a, an exact answer for you other than to say if there's a further 100 billion coming in, I think there's opportunity for private finance. What that looks like is, is to be explored and I'm very optimistic that the conversations are just kicking off now in that space. We're clearly not going to go back to a PFI model uh, going forward, but there is huge opportunity and I think we need to explore that uh, much more than we have today. Can I just pick up a, a question on the, the implementation <coughs> point? Um, Absolutely agree on the importance of kind of the IPA itself, kind of understanding these proven technologies, and then trying to uh, get departments to pick those up. Clearly, some departments' um, cultures are slightly further behind than others. Uh, maybe reluctant to take on new technology. How do you, as the IPA, convince them to do so? So we're having a dialogue right now with uh, the head of government to um, move to really a cadence where we have regular dialogue with each and every department on their plans and programs to drive modern methods of construction and the transforming infrastructure program into, um, into life in their investments. So I think you're going to see a change in dynamics in that space. Great. Okay, let's take a, a couple more questions. Um, gentleman right at the back there. Hello, James Mitra, civil servant at HM Revenue and Customs. On the performance aspect, you mentioned about the development of key performance indicators. What are the main challenges in ensuring that those key performance indicators provide a reliable measure of the likelihood of projects delivering to time and cost? Great, thank you. And then we'll take one more from this gentleman here in the blue shirt. Ben Zaranko from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Is project delivery an area where high civil service turnover is likely to pose particular problems? 
Okay, so let me take the uh, benchmarking question first um, and KPIs. I think all too often people talk about PIs, performance indicators, things that you should measure to drive your business. KPIs really are worthy of some really deep thinking before you set off about if you were only allowed to measure three things that would be a strong indicator of your outcomes, what would they be? And so I'm a strong advocate of doing the thinking up front and getting those really high-level key performance indicators that you know will have a direct correlation with a better outcome and then requiring them to be measured and reported on a regular basis. And if you do that, yes, I do think they can have a direct impact on, on better performance. But the key is to not have 20, write them all down, report them regularly, and they, they, they mean different things to different people. That's, that's meaningless. And it's a tough conversation to have, but it's actually quite a powerful conversation to have if you have the right uh, facts and figures at your fingertips. So, turnover. Yeah, I've come into government from private sector and I'm quite surprised at the amount of turnover. Um, but it's in pockets. And I think in the civil service it's pretty normal to have turnover. People move on from job to job. It's not been an issue within the IPA per se uh, in terms of impacting our deep professional uh, skill base. Um, it can be quite healthy if you have project professionals who come into the IPA for a period of time and then go out as ambassadors into projects in the different departments. So we've seen that be highly successful in keeping a connectivity with better performance. Um, it worries me, and it's a lens that we have to keep, keep focus on, but quite frankly, I don't think it'll be the reason why we do or do not perform. I'd add it's not just civil service turnover either, it's ministerial turnover. So we had a report out this week looking at ministerial turnover, and actually it's not much more than top-flight football managers uh, that, uh, that ministers are staying in their jobs. And actually, if you look to Germany, they're spending up to 300 days more on average in post than they are here. And you know, there's particularly bad ones, like we've had 18 housing ministers since 1997. Um, so, yeah, it's not just the civil service. Um, on the KPIs point, um, so the uh, last uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, David Liddington, um, when he was doing lots of work on procurement, um, said that they were going to publish some uh, KPIs from major contracts with major contractors. I don't know if you have any thoughts on when we might see those. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know whether that's the case, but I would certainly endorse his ambition to do that. <laughs> uh, so that's something we should follow up on. Great. Okay, let's take uh, a couple more questions. Take gentleman down here and then there. <coughs> so, oh, Cyril Meadows, um, I'm not from any organization. Uh, I believe the Chinese are building a hospital in 10 days at the moment. Uh, have we anything to learn from them? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then just in here. Yeah, Simon Webb from Nichols and the Major Projects Association. Um, one thing which the EU did was to remove past performance as a, as a um, criterion for project contract award in its directives. Um, do you see an opportunity to change that again after from next week's negotiations? Hmm. Okay, so two very uh, different but perhaps related questions. Um, can we learn how to build hospitals in 10 days? I, I, I think we could, couldn't we? Um, will it work? don't know. Um, the reality is if you want to build modular and build quickly, 
and build to high quality. You need a manufacturing facility away from the construction site and the only reason that hospital is built in 10 days is because all the modules arrive and they're plugged and played together. And I've seen a video of them building a hotel in uh, Beijing where it was multi-storey high, uh, built in modules of three storeys at a time, bathrooms complete, plumbing complete and uh, a digital spine up the back that plugged in and they built that in a matter of days. So when I talk about modern methods of construction in the UK, that's really what I'm alluding to, that the end ambition must be that you can do a better job if you take a lot of the construction away from the construction site and do it in modular form. And I'm not talking about prefab. If you've got prefab at the back of your mind, we're way past that. We're into a world where the digital world allows you to 3D print things. It allows you to build, complete and test things off-site and then bring them to, to, to a construction location. So whether it's a hospital, a school, a hotel, a prison, we can do far more in that space. But to do that, you need to have your standards complete, you need to have digital specifications, and you need to have a supply chain that can do it. Um, so I'm quite optimistic that we'll make good progress in, in uh, short order to get to that place. Is 10 days the right answer? I think the, the, the Chinese have a, a, an unlimited um, resource base to work, uh, and I think we've got some catching up to do. And then the second question on past performance. Past performance, um, <clears throat> I think there's been a, a challenge of what EU legislation is holding us back. So I think the focus isn't so much on should we measure past performance, yes or no, it's what is it doing to support or restrict our environment for better procurement. And there's certainly an opportunity being studied right now by a working group of what we intend to change after the 31st of uh, January. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that on past performance, even if public bodies did want to take it into account, in many cases they would find it very difficult because it's really hard to identify the past performance of past contractors. The quality of uh, contract data, of spending data is really poor. It's really difficult to link that up. And central government's made some progress. They have a new system mm. called KC that allows them to, to do that. But that's really only for central government contracts. So I think there's a lot more to do there on the kind of the data architecture around contracts in order to do that. Um, let's take a couple more questions. Uh, so lady there in the blue. Hello, um, Miranda Sharp from Ordnance Survey and the National Digital Twin Programme. Um, with so much of uh, infrastructure uh, um, focuses on construction rather than the instrumentation and improvement of performance of existing infrastructure, um, do you have any comment on how we might broaden the debate? Um, right, and then there was a, yeah, there was one in the, at the front. Vaughan Miles, uh, project consultant. Uh, my question is, uh, linked. Firstly, re regarding the, the new crack team that uh, Dominic Cummings wants to build in number 10, how would that sit within, uh, given that they want to be kind of pirates in the Navy, how would that sit within a very rigid structure with the Treasury and the Cabinet Office and numerous other um, frameworks in place and departments? And linked to that is what, what room is there for iterative and agile approaches within such large infrastructure organizations? Okay, if I talk about existing infrastructure and, and digital twinning, I think that the data suggests that we add half a percent to the infrastructure base each year. Um, so conversely, there's huge opportunity in the existing uh, space. As you start to think about carbon neutral, you think about lowering cost and being more uh, nimble in how we work, 
Digitising the existing infrastructure base is a real opportunity. And a few years ago, it used to be unheard of that you'd go and do things like laser scanning because it was just too expensive. If you look at the cost of photogrammetry now, it's really quite cheap. And I think there's a huge opportunity to move into that space and do more. And the debate has started. So to your question, we're active with what can we do on maintenance in the near term because it's easier than some of these 10, 15-year programs that will take time to mature. And I can't speak for what's happening in number 10. What I can tell you is there is a huge request and ask from number 10 to give more strength to IPA's focus in assurance and support to government major projects. So I'm not aware of a separate uh, exercise. On the contrary, I think we're going to be brought more and more to the fore to give a professional opinion about what uh, good looks like. Um, on the topic of upgrading existing infrastructure, um, this week there's been quite a lot of press about the smart motorways uh, program mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that there's been a kind of substantial increase in the number of deaths mm. in that program versus normal motorways. Mm. What, what do you think government can learn from how that program has been rolled out? Well, I'm sure they're looking right now at the, the data and trying to understand what, what are the causation factors, so I can't comment for what Highways England will be doing. It's had significant cost benefits in terms of delivery of project performance, but equally in any uh, ecosystem you need to look at the whole life cycle cost, the impact on society as well, so they need to do that work, I think. Great. Okay, let's take a, a couple of more questions. Sure. Uh, yeah, okay, the, the lady down here. <coughs> Thanks. <coughs> Sorry. Lorna Booth, House of Commons Library. Um, you talked a bit earlier about the value of freezing the scope of pro the importance of freezing the scope of projects. How do you do that with long-term projects where you have a changing political environment and such a high turnover of politicians? Any ideas? Uh, great. And I'll take one more. I'll come to you in a moment, but let's take this just here in the doorway. Hi, Susanna um, from Civil Service World. Um, you mentioned that IPA will be kind of reshifting its focus um, to become a pro future project um, focus. Can you give us any more idea on what that might look like, kind of timescales on that, what it might mean for how you interact with departments? Okay, so freezing the scope. Yeah, gosh, it's tough, isn't it? Um, let, let me take two elements because I think they are different. If you're building something, it's relatively straightforward to scope it out and freeze the scope. So long as you've had a good conversation about what the functionality is, what the end result is, how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. That's quite straightforward. What becomes really challenging and difficult with many of the government projects is their long-term transformational projects. The scopes are less clear, especially in the IT and, and transformation space. And I don't think we've always done enough scoping early enough to understand the complexities of the program. And then we've put a point estimate and a schedule on the table without really doing sufficient definition work. So we've got to learn how to better do that. So that's one piece. Then to your comment about, well, how do we work in that political environment? I think equally project professionals have to stand up and be held to account on what the cost and schedule is and what the consequence of change is and have an honest conversation with those who want to change it about what the consequence is. Ultimately, politicians will set the policies and make decisions. Sometimes they do it without any pushback on consequence. And I think I've always come from a world where, as a project delivery professional, there are always consequences to late changes. And it's about having a grown-up conversation about them. Okay, the other question about Project Futures. Uh, we're reorganising the IPA to put a Project Futures team in place by uh, April of this year. 
Uh, we've already started to look in quite some depth about modern methods of construction. The Transforming Infrastructure Programme looks in that space. Uh, we're looking at um, productivity and we're reaching out to some of the research establishments as we speak. So it'll be transitional, but with a, a specific team in place by April. Great. We'll take a couple more questions. There's a gentleman at the back and then one over there. Thank you. It's John Deere from Sopristeria. I'm very encouraged by what I've heard this morning. Um, many of the points that you've made are around productivity, reducing of variation, confidence in uh, prediction of scope. These are issues that have been resolved in other industries. So, for example, automotive, yeah. in Six Sigma, yeah. um, confidence in supply with agile methodology. Um, what are your intentions for reaching out to other industries to um, stand on the shoulders of giants? Great, and then uh, the gentleman. Um, Michael Bauscher, Barrister. Um, there is a narrative about that the private sector runs rings around government in procurement and project delivery. Do you think that's true? And if so, why and what can be done about it? Interesting. Two great questions. Um, if you look at uh, how we can um, embrace that space on, on performance and productivity and all the rest and reach out to others, I've done that in the private sector prior to coming into this role, which is how I can really embrace what's possible in other industries. I looked at the aero industry, the automotive industry. It's truly impressive what's happening in that space. Um, I think we've got a huge amount to learn. And I have an intention of taking many of my team members into some of those spaces to understand what's possible, to talk to those who provide in that space about what's possible. And uh, when you look back 20 years and think about how we used to build automotives, and if you went to a modern factory now and saw what was automated, you would be amazed. So if we're truly serious about modern methods of construction, I think we've got to learn how to, to play in that space. And you only learn if you actually interface with them. Um, to the other question, remind me, remind me again? Uh, that was about... The narrative. The narrative that the public sector runs okay, rings around. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, <coughs> I think running rings is a bit strong, but I do think we can need to step up and be clear on requirements. And I think for too long we've expected the supply chain to show up and bring to the table everything that the private sector might have requested or asked for. That hasn't happened. I think we're actually going to step up to become informed clients and require and request much more than we have in the past. And we've talked about other industries. Are there other countries that you've worked in with Shell that you think do this better than we do? Um, I think the developing nations have a deeper ambition to go faster, is what I'd draw a, a, an observation to. So the developed world typically are somewhat complacent. They're okay. We've done it this way before. We'll adapt very slowly, and when push comes to shove, we'll change. I think the developing nations have a true energy and ambition to leapfrog the developed world and be at, at the forefront. And I think having a robust um, and committed government with some significant investment is going to give us, I think, the supply chain and the, the pipeline of work where we can take a different look than we've had in the past 10 years. You know, it's always been feast and famine and can you commit because maybe the projects aren't going to happen. If there's a steady pipeline of investment, I think it gives a great platform for the supply chain to think, do you know what, now's the time I can invest and make a difference. And whether that be in uh, human capital with apprentice schemes 
training people in smart ways of working or actually uh, investing in software solutions, I think they, uh, they'll, they'll have that opportunity. So I'm, I'm quite excited about the future in that space. Great. Any more questions? Okay, well, I might ask one additional question. Um, one of the ways that uh, past governments have tried to ensure kind of greater certainty in our pipeline of infrastructure projects and that they're more led by experts rather than kind of political whims was the creation of the uh, NIC uh, with their publication of the National Infrastructure Assessment with the National Infrastructure Strategy coming. Obviously, that their timetable, which was to publish once every parliament, has been slightly superseded by us having far more parliaments uh, in recent years uh, than expected. Um, do you think that that institutional setup is still fit for purpose in terms of having an independent body making recommendations, government acting on those, and then starting the cycle again every hopefully five years? I have a personal view. I think it's very helpful. It's a healthy tension to get an independent view of what's possible uh, and then have uh, an, an honest and professional response um, in the form of the National Infrastructure Strategy because you have to balance what's affordable across the nation uh, with what's desired. Um, we've been delayed indeed because of the, uh, the, the postponement of the budget and the general election. So the National Infrastructure Strategy uh, response will come out shortly after the, uh, the budget. And I think it's a, a, a great forum to have that, that tension between government and, and advisors. Great. Okay, well, I'm going to bring the event to a close there. Hopefully it's a, an auspicious sign for uh, government infrastructure planning that this event has ended sooner than it planned. Um, if ahead of schedule. It's good. <laughs> uh, if this hasn't uh, quite quenched your thirst for... Uh, uh, major projects content, please do uh, read Whitehall Monitor. We've also written seven recent reports on uh, government infrastructure planning, which are all available on our website. Uh, can I thank you all for attending and for asking a series of fantastic questions that were all short and were all, in fact, questions. Uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, can I thank uh, APM for kindly uh, supporting this event? And can you all please uh, join me in thanking Nick for the last hour? Thank you.